Listener Production. A quick disclaimer before we get started. Although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. All the content and information discussed in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Remember, always consult your doctor before making any decisions about your health. You've probably never given much thought to your bladder, and honestly, why would you? When it's doing its job, you're golden. I promise, that's not a pun. But when it's decided to cause trouble, well, that's when life takes an unexpected bathroom break. I'm just going to run to the bathroom. The bladder is perhaps one of the most undervalued, yet crucially important organs in the body. And it all starts with a sip of your espresso martini. Once that glorious mixture of caffeine, sugar and carbonation, the bladder's sworn enemies, hits the acid bath of your stomach, what hasn't been destroyed gets propelled into the small intestines, yes, that's how we pronounce it in Britain, (laughs) where it's absorbed into the bloodstream. Of course I'm drunk. Now, your kidneys, those little bean-shaped organs below your liver, maintain the hydration harmony of your bloodstream, filtering blood into purified water, which gets absorbed back into the bloodstream, ushering waste down the ureters towards the bladder. Ah, the bladder. A female bladder can hold between 500 mils to one litre of liquid. But that's really stretching it, literally. Once your bladder has reached its limit, it signals to your brain... You are ordered to evacuate the building immediately. Studies show that holding your wee in for too long, too frequently, can cause some serious consequences. But I got a horrible UTI. And all my mums out there will know what I mean when I say pregnancy has an uncanny way of making you hyper-aware that your bladder does indeed have muscles. I couldn't find the toilet. Do you understand? Urine itself is 90% water, so nothing really to call home about, right? Wrong! Physicians from ancient times, right up until the Victorian era, literally called it the divine fluid, starting with Hippocrates, who legitimised urine assessment as a diagnostic tool. But even before Hippocrates started looking at pee through glass jars, Sumerian and Babylonian physicians in 4000 BC were so enamoured with urine that they made notes on it on clay tablets for the world to see. Can you shut the hell up? Practices similar to this persisted for thousands of years to come. And it was somewhat accurate. A little sniff, whiff and a taste. Oh no, not again. And your doctor had a window into the inner workings of your body. As a GP, I can assure you we no longer use this method. Because in 1637, a fellow by the name of Thomas Bryan launched a medical rebellion against doctors who decided we was the only diagnostic tool. And he did that in the form of a book called The Peace Prophet. Don't think it's yours just because you marked it with your urine. Nonetheless, urine is important and the house that holds it even more so. So when the house is on fire, is it always a UTI? When the house is leaking, can anything be done to stop it? And why is the women's bathroom line always so long? Hi, I'm Dr. Sneh Wadwani, women's health GP and advocate. And this is Everything from A to V, the podcast separating the fact from the fiction when it comes to women's health. 
Here, we'll answer some of the most common questions I get asked by women just like you, and we'll debunk a few myths along the way too. But we were discussing matters of the vagina, Bruce, not the heart. In this episode, we'll be chatting to urogynecologist Zoran Chen. She'll be giving us the lowdown on pelvic health, bladder mysteries, and offer expert guidance on maintaining optimal bladder health. Zuren, it's great to have you with us today um, on the podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your area of expertise. Thanks for having me, Sneha. A little bit about myself. So I'm a female urogynecologist and a gynecologist. We're kind of like doctors that are halfway between a gynecologist and a urologist. A little bit of a rare breed in the country. There's about two dozens of us all together. I'm a surgeon, I'm a clinician, and I think most importantly, I'm a women's health advocate. At the end of the day, my job, I get to fix a woman who last week told me, you know what, doctor, the best thing you did was you made me normal again. And you know, she said, I didn't appreciate what normal was until my body stopped listening to me. And you know what, thanks. I never want to see you again, but you fixed me. See you (laughs) later. And that was the best thing for the end of the day. That's such a lovely story and is entirely true, I think, for women's health. Certainly in in my practice as well, even in, in the primary care setting, in general practice. So I don't know if you've noticed, I'm sure you have. You're a lady just like us. But the discrepancy between the men's bathroom line and the female bathroom line has become a bit of a talking point in social media these days. And of course, you know, a lot of the places we go to, there's a toilet for men and a toilet for women. You know, there's no understanding or provision that we might need more female toilets. What's that about, Zuren? Why why are there only why why do women need to go for we so much more than men? I'll tell you what, I reckon those shopping centres were designed by men, definitely. (laughs) I think you're right. (laughs) It's like the old saying, you know, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. (laughs) Fundamentally, we're made different down there, you know, that the men and women's urethra, our bladders, it's a different shape, it's a different size. The muscle that makes us dry or allows us control of the bladder is the size of a walnut in men and is the size of a pea in women. A female urethra is three times shorter than men. And then on top of that, we have to push a baby through. It's not well supported. It's just, you know, from the beginning, God didn't make us fair. Women take longer to wee as well. So there's a sort of slower sort of turnover, if you would. So you add it all together, there's always going to be a longer line in the girls' bathroom. <laughs> so there's no winning there unless they start putting no. more ladies' toilets in. And just in that scenario, so typically, you know, you go out to a bar or a club or when I was younger, certainly did that. Not so much now. (laughs) Um, But back in those days, that's when the queue's the longest, right? And um, certainly there are certain drinks and foods that will trigger the bladder more, won't they? And I think alcohol is one of them, but there's a whole heap of others. Yeah, no, definitely. I like to think of it as the big four. So alcohol is probably top top of the line, but less so because we know most of us, if we're good, well-behaved citizens, don't drink and go out clubbing every night, but all of us certainly like our cup of coffee or tea in the morning. And so caffeinated drinks is a definite big thing. And it really impacts how much we wee because it's what's called a diuretic. So when we drink it, even though you could just be an espresso shot girl or a piccolo girl, you still 
your body forces more water out despite you drinking maybe only 20, 30 mils. So you've got alcohol, you've got caffeinated. And what are the other two big things? The other two big things is carbonated drinks, and they often go hand in hand with caffeinated. Think about your Pepsi, your Coke, your energy drinks. There's a lot of caffeine. Sometimes a bottle of energy drink has more caffeine than just a normal cup of coffee. And the last thing that sometimes can impact how often we go is acid in our drinks. So very acidic drinks is irritating irritating to our bladder, so our body produces more urine to flush it out. Now, you think about that nice cup of cocktail at the club. It's probably got a little bit of alcohol, definitely got some carbonated, definitely maybe sometimes if you like your espresso martini, it's got some caffeine in it. So you add that all together there's your line. And usually there's only one or two bathrooms for the for both men and women. And women just have a smaller bladder capacity than men, full stop. So we have to go more often. Wow. Yeah. So so that lovely uh, cocktail is quite the trigger, isn't it, really? And so certainly when I when I see patients through my clinic, you know, there's patients who'll go, I wee all the time, doc. And I go, okay, how many times on average do you wee? Oh, you know, I'll wee four times a day. And I'm thinking, okay, that's really not an issue. But there is a kind of guide, isn't there? There is a, there is a sort of threshold beyond which we start to think, hang on, you are weeing a bit more than we would expect. And, and what's the guide for that for the people listening? When should they start thinking that actually I might be weeing a bit more than I should be? Well, I think four is definitely on the lower end of the range. So your, your ladies might have some really good bladders, but anywhere up to about 10 is kind of an acceptable range. But everyone's different because really it depends on how much you drink, um, you know, whether you're a lady that just goes as an in case or are you just someone who always likes to hold on because you're a teacher or you're a nurse or you're a bus driver and you don't have the, the times to go to the bathroom just at your leisure. I think if you're out with friends and you seem to be always the one that says we need a toilet break, that's a bit of an alarm bell. Or if you're someone who maps out and knows all where all the bathrooms are in the shopping centres, or you worry about the bathrooms and you plan that for your overseas trip, that's also an alarm sign. That's probably more helpful than trying to count the number of times you weed, because that's hard. If you ask me how many times I weed yesterday, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> and what about weeing at night? Is that normal? When isn't it normal, I guess? Look, probably once at night is acceptable and reasonable for most people. When it gets up to two, three, four, then it's certainly not normal and it can be disruptive to your sleep quality because no matter how good you are a sleeper and how good you are getting back at sleep, it definitely interrupts your REM sleep. If you're a lucky lady that sleeps through the whole night and just has to get up and wee in the morning, great. If you're that lady that wees once at night, you're on average, so don't be too disheartened. And if you're the two plus more, you might want to have a look at what's going on there. You know, Zurin, you touched on something earlier, you know, people who hold their wee or people who wee just in case. Now, this is the one where your mum from when you were tiny has always said, do you need a wee before we go in the car? Do you need a wee? You should go for a wee before we go in the car. I mean, what's the deal with this? Should we wee in case? Should we not wee in case? When is holding on too much? Should we hold on? You know, it's all out there. We've we've been listening to mums and grannies for ages. It's time to debunk this. Yeah, definitely. I reckon that mum was probably, she
she just got the car started and the kid's like, mom, I need a toilet break. I think that mom was probably sick of that one. So <laughs> definitely it's, it's kind of one of those things where either end is not good. It's not good to hold on for too long and it's not good to go just in case. Having said that, we all live in real life. You know, there's got to be some exceptions made. If you're going to a place where you know there's absolutely no bathroom access and you really don't want to get caught out peeing by the side of the bushes, sure, that's okay. But don't make it a thing every time because if you do over time consistently, your bladder can actually shrink over time. So then you can drink less and it becomes a vicious cycle. On the other end, holding your wee for too long is also a problem because our bladder is not infinite. You know, it can only hold a certain amount. Probably the maximum it can hold without really causing too much problems is somewhere between half a litre to one litre. And the thing is, your kidney doesn't just stop producing urine just because your bladder is full. It just keeps pumping away. If you really hold on for too long, by the time we get to the bathroom, it's become this not desperate, but it's actually this achy pain. And when you sit down to wee, you're kind of going, come on, come on, start, and nothing happens. And then it takes a long, long time to wee. That's probably a sign that you've pushed the friendship a little bit too far. The bladder is forgiving. It'll bounce back. But, you know, it's like your favorite pair of jeans. You stretch it once, twice. It has a little bit of give, but then eventually it will really not recover. So got to treat that organ with respect. Absolutely. You want to know the truth? Go on, tell us. <laughs> Vaginal birth, hands down, is just not good for your pelvic floor. But it's a beautiful part of life. And, you know, I don't want every woman thinking out there that they should run away and have a cesarean section because, unfortunately, that's not going to save you either. Because as you touched on, Snea, if you're pregnant, even with a cesarean section, you can still have problems. Our pelvic floor is a really strong, tight muscle. But any strong, tight muscles, you put something that's 5 to 10 kilos on top of it, constantly, every day for 10 months. What do you reckon is going to happen? I mean, I carry the grocery bags and by the time I get home, my <laughs> arm is sore. It's, it's not good. You know, during pregnancy, maybe one and two mums have some form of bladder control issue. Maybe it's going to the bathroom really often. It can be getting up three to four times a night to wee. It can be a bit of incontinence when you're, you know, not least expecting it. And then about 60% of women after a baby have more of those problems. Some of them get better, but one in 10 women in their lifetime will probably end up with an operation to fix their incontinence because of childbirth and pregnancy. Bit of the hard truth. Mm, that's a, a very um, stark statistic, isn't it? One in 10. Let's talk a bit about UTIs, right? Because most women think they're having UTIs quite often, often more often than they're actually having a UTI. And sadly, many of them will present to their GP with symptoms that sound like a UTI and they often just get given antibiotics, don't they? And sometimes a urine test hasn't been sent to the lab so the GP or the doctor has just assumed that that's what it is. And often then this pattern of behaviour starts, you know, that the patient might or the lady might notice the symptoms again, assume that it's a UTI again and go back for the same treatment. And we end up in this endless cycle. And the reality is there are other conditions that will mimic a UTI but aren't a UTI. And I think we need to address that as well because there's plenty of women in that category that are undiagnosed, aren't there? Definitely. And it's also a really tricky group of women who, because 
there's been so many antibiotics. Sometimes there are ladies who have UTIs, but the UTIs don't show up on the, the tests that are ordered because of the way that the antibiotic has been prescribed. And then the antibiotic also wrecks havoc on your gut, your skin, your overall health. It's almost like this antibiotic is a tool that's become too easy to use and created a whole heap of its own problems. But there's certainly other conditions such as the painful bladder syndrome that I touched on. I had one lady couple of years ago who had a big cyst in her urethra that every time she had sex, it just made it burst. And so it was so painful. And so antibiotics helped a little bit, but there was nothing in the urine. And she went on for years before that was assessed properly. Let's talk a bit about UTIs after sex, though. With the right measures, it shouldn't be something that's frequent, should it? You know, it should really just be a one-off. So you know, what What can we do to help women who think they're having UTIs after sex or actually are having UTIs after sex? Yeah, that one, you know what? UTIs after sex is a really common thing. It shouldn't be, but it is. And it comes back down to that we weren't made fair because our urethra is only about three centimetres. A lot of women with the UTI after sex, it's not just one problem. It's a lot of different problems. And I think this comes back down to society as a whole, our food, our nutrition. I see so many more young women with UTIs after sex than I have ever seen, you know, compared to 10, 15, even 20 years ago. It's kind of a different dynamic. And it's probably because our immune system is not as good. That is a big component. Our immune system is not as good because, you know, three years of COVID, we all got stuck indoors. Our vitamin Ds are all low and we know vitamin D is a vital factor. We also don't eat and drink enough fruit and veggies, so our vitamin C is low. When I address UTIs, I address it at that woman as a whole rather than just the sex component. They really should improve the immune system. Other measures that can help with UTIs after sex is drinking a lot of water, during that day and afterwards to flush out any little bacteria that made it up there after sex, weeing after sex. If you do engage in anal intercourse, you have to be very diligent with uh, washing down there, like a full shower, because that definitely can seed bacteria. And also taking some form of what we call antimicrobial. There are two that you can get over the counter that are very good. One of them is Hyprex, and it's an acid. And the other one is called D-manos, which is a large molecular weight sugar. It's like taking fiber, but it goes into the bladder, and it's really sticky for the bacteria. By taking that for a couple of days after having sex, it kind of just helps get on top of it. And when you get all the meshes right, it will help. But there's still going to be some people that, you know, they say, look, my mum's had UTIs after sex, my nan's had it, my sister has it. That one, you can probably blame your family, your genetics. That one's a bit of a hard case. You might need to see your GP, a specialist about that one. So Zuren, cranberry juice, what's the deal with cranberry juice? Oh, that's a very good question. For disclaimer, I have hold no shares in any of these cranberry companies. (laughs) So juice is absolutely rubbish, too much sugar. Nothing good in that. It's actually the active compound in the cranberry itself that it is an antimicrobial. The problem is, is that you probably have to drink about five litres of cranberry a day for it to actually be effective 
or you chew down the raw cranberries, which we, I don't know whether you tasted them, they're pretty, pretty sour. So you'd have to coat them in sugar. And so that's kind of counterintuitive. A lot of people say, oh, cranberry tablets. The problem with cranberry tablets is that with all health food supplements, it's not standardized. There are different ways of how that company describes that cranberry active ingredient, and they should all label it as the active cyacin. You need 50 to 60 micrograms of that for it, to, for it to be effective. So the companies right now, they say, oh, you should only take one or two tablets. But when you look at the back of the bottle, most of them you'd have to take six to, for it to work. So that's why some people say cranberry works. Some people say cranberry doesn't. The people that say cranberry works probably found the right brand that actually had enough for what was recommended. That's great, Zoran. So you've debunked cranberry, but what about Euron? Oh, oh no. Oh, God, I've got to debunk another one. <laughs> yes. Okay. Go on, tell the secret about Euron. All right. So Euron is a very, very good medication that a lot of ladies probably have in their wallets sometimes or in their handbags. It definitely helps with the burning when you wee. But you know what? I'm sorry, everyone, telling you the truth. It's just very expensive sodium bicarbonate. <laughs> and, it, and the reason why it works is because it makes your urine not acidic because acid burns. That's it. It's like you put lemon juice on an open cut wound. It hurts. And same thing with your bladder. If your bladder is inflamed, everything about your wee, I mean, think about it. Why do we wee? We wee because it's the stuff that our body doesn't want in us. It's trying to get rid of the toxins for us. So that stuff in the urine's nasty. That's why we get nappy rashes and burns if urine sits on our skin for too long. So our bladder actually does an amazing job of keeping that urine in there constantly and not get irritated. But when it reaches a hiccup, and it's irritated, the lining doesn't work as well, that's when the burning happens. So Euro just kind of masks the problem. So if you're drowning down Euro daily, probably a good idea to go and see someone. So patients or women experiencing pain when they pee, Mm. it isn't always a UTI, is it? No, absolutely not. It can be stones, it can be bladder pain problem, it can be neurological, endometriosis, cyst. It can be so many different things. So if you've done it once as that person who just went to get some antibiotics and it kind of went away and it happens the second time and the third time, I'd say by the third time, probably get it looked into. And those postmenopausal women, you know, it's quite a common feature for them as well. Mm. And And I think, you know, we tend to forget that the you know, the menopause and the lack of estrogen also affects the urethra as well as the vagina. Absolutely. It affects it a lot. I think I have, I think one lady told me, she said, it just felt like someone sucked everything out of there. That was it. (laughs) It's this silent condition that is underrepresented because we had a big scare about hormone replacement therapy from the Women's Health Study 20 years ago. And then a lot of women were just miserable for 20 years because we took everyone off HRT. We're coming around to the idea we know that it's not as unsafe or as dangerous as we thought it was. We've stopped producing horse estrogen to give to women, so that was definitely a big bonus. And yeah, menopause and bladder pain, getting a lot more recognition from both women themselves and doctors, and um, a little bit of estrogen can help with that. I think bladder health is one of those things that is largely unspoken. Women still don't talk about it. There's a lot of taboo around it, particularly around the incontinence piece. But When we talk about bladder health, you know, often this is informed in lots of women by various old wives' tales and granny says this and mum says that. 
the weeing in case versus the not weeing in case and you know all that sort of stuff. But bladder health is super important, isn't it? Oh, look, I, I have to fully agree with you on this. Bladder health is really important. And you know why? I think it's because we take our bladders for granted. I mean, look, we take our whole body for granted most of the days. We expect everything to work and function as well. But our bladder is a really hardworking organ. I mean, think about it, where it lives in our body. It's right below our bikini line, our underwear. It gets squashed, pulled, pushed, shoved to the side from lots of different things that happens in a day, right? And it's not until that something goes wrong when the bladder is out of our control that we kind of go, hang on, well, I didn't have to think about it before and now what's going on? on. And when the bladder goes off track, as I say, there's a lot of social, psychological, emotional and physical impact a bladder has on us. A bladder that doesn't listen to us, it affects our ability to work, it affects our ability to travel, our social interactions, our hobby, and look even very intimately for women who have incontinence. It's something they don't disclose. It really puts off their sex life. I have one patient last week who told me, look, it's very awkward because I have to pee before I have sex, which completely kills the mood. And then I still leak during sex, which also kills the mood even more. And it's embarrassing. And it erodes away at a woman's confidence level. It's a silent, I think it's a silent killer. Like we just live with it. So commonly people who've got bladder problems might experience difficulty with going too often. That's quite common. They might also have difficulty holding on to their wee. They might have difficulty also, you know, when they cough, sneeze and jump. That might make them leak a bit of urine. So there's a real variety in in the symptoms that people might be experiencing. And, and they may also have things like bladder pain and recurrent urine infections as well. But if we focus on the sort of functional bit, you know, the bit around the actual weeing, weeing too frequently, leaking with weeing. What what should they expect in terms of when they go and see a doctor? Well, what's the kind of steps and what treatment options are available for them? A very good question. And yes, the bladder, lack of bladder control and weeing problems is quite complex because they're not all the same. I think finding a doctor that you're comfortable with Disclosing this information is probably the most important first step because if it's someone that, you, someone that you're not comfortable with, you're probably not going to tell them the full story, which then leads down to maybe the wrong test being performed. So if it is someone who goes often, sort of leaks before they get there or, you know, is busting all the time, the primary care physician is probably the first port of call. They're probably someone they're more comfortable with. And the things that can be done is a urine test to make sure there's no urinary tract infections. Often it is just that. And once it's treated, it's better. Ultrasounds of the pelvis or the bladder can also be helpful to make sure that there's no other problems within those organs that are contributing. And also an examination to see what's going on. When those tests have been done, if it's a urinary tract infection that's been treated, if there is vaginal prolapse that needs addressing, if there's other problems such as big fibroids that are pressing on the bladder, and sometimes there are foreign bodies, stones, all these things, if they're addressed and they've been resolved, but underlying it is still a functional, almost like a neurological damage problem to an organ that's been stressed out, then there are treatments that can be started by modifying and looking at how much we're drinking. I mean, coming back to what we touched on before about what's normal with the weaning. Now that we've kind of gauged on what's normal and what isn't, there can be physiotherapy and retraining. Sometimes medications can help 
gain that control back. And medication is a crutch to get to where you need to. And when you're good again, you can let go of it. And we get lots of other options, but they become quite complicated and certainly shouldn't be sort of Dr. Googled by a woman herself to say, oh, I like the sound of that one, so I'm going to go and pick someone to do that. (laughs) I think it's worth starting at the beginning. Find yourself a GP or a primary care physician that you're comfortable with um, and, and go from there. There is something for everyone. There's going to be an option and a treatment for every woman. If you're not dry, you haven't got good bladder control, you probably just haven't found the right combination. Brilliant. So when's it time to see a GP or urogynecologist then if they've got bladder symptoms? When should they go to a GP? When should they be asking for a referral? That's a hard one, Stay. I think you, you save the hardest question for last. Always. <laughs> so the, the, it's going to be different for every lady. And I think everyone has a bottom line. When it affects their quality of life, when it affects their ability to interact, socialize with friends, hold a meaningful relationship, hold down a job, that's definitely alarm signs to say that they should go and see their GP or a specialist. If it's just a once-off, I give it, I'd give it probably six weeks to 12 weeks because often there can be temporary things such as stress in your life that makes your bladder worse. And when that stress is gone, your bladder gets better. And if you go and see a GP or gynecologist or a urogynecologist prematurely and they start doing tests, that may raise your anxiety more because maybe this thing will just peter out on its own. But things that linger for more than 12 weeks, that go on for six months, 12 months, two years, before you know it, it's three years, I think it's time to do something about it. And I think too often, you know, I love being a GP, but there's so many GPs who get stuck at the UTI phase. You know, they're like, if it's not a UTI, I don't know what it is. And as a patient, I think what's really important is if if you feel you're not getting anywhere, if you feel you're not getting better, ask to see a women's health GP or ask to see a specialist because I think that's really important. Yeah, yeah. I think it's time women stepped up and advocated for themselves a lot, not just a little bit, it should be a lot. Zoran, it's been amazing having you with us today. You're a true advocate for women's health and uh, I'm, uh, I'm just thrilled that you were able to join us today. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a great afternoon. So... There you go. The women's bathroom line is so long because one, our bladders are smaller and two, architects hate us. Just kidding. Kind of. If you have pain down there or things are getting a bit leaky, it might not always be a UTI and cranberry juice is not going to save you. Persistent discomfort should always be checked out by a doctor and there's no shame in doing so. That's especially the case if you feel as if you've hit a dead end with your incontinence or your recurring UTIs. Everyone's bladders are different, so always talk to your doctor before making any changes to your health. This podcast is a listener production hosted by me, Sne Wadwani. Producer is Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens with sound design by Kelly Falston. Listener.